This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The Health Report with me, Norman Swan. Today, a common and potentially dangerous cause of breathlessness, which is often missed with disastrous consequences. Yet, there's a simple test for it. Why an exercise stress ECG is often a waste of time and money. How a fatal cardiac arrest is often not out of the blue. The stories the heart can tell. And good news for delaying the onset of Alzheimer's disease and dementia, even in people who seem to be at increased risk because of the build-up of dementia-related substances in the brain called amyloid and tau. There's a drug you can take. It's called exercise. Jasmir Chatwal is a neurologist at Harvard Medical School in Boston, and I spoke to him earlier. There's been quite a bit of supportive evidence, and certainly it's been part of the counseling for people that have especially mild memory loss. We hadn't really looked at how brain structure changed over time. So we know that from your late 20s and early 30s, you start to lose uh, brain tissue volume. The question is how much and where. And one of the neat things with this particular study was that we were able to look at how brain volumes changed on MRI over years. And by doing that, we could actually quantify, examine the, the protective effect of physical activity. And one other neat thing that came out of this was that the protective effects of physical activity were actually greater in people that had high amyloid burdens in the brains. A lot of people would call that preclinical Alzheimer's disease. So these are people that are most at risk. People who are at high risk have high amyloid burdens. What do they do? We don't have disease-modifying therapies. I think that physical activity is certainly one way, and we sort of looked also at cardiovascular risk and so that- how that fit in with physical activity. So just describe the study to us. We took about 180 people from a study called the Harvard Aging Brain Study, which is a longitudinal study of preclinical Alzheimer's disease and, and aging. We're following a group of people who are at risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. Exactly. And so doing we brain start scans with, on them as you go along. There's a very similar study going on here in Sydney. Yeah, the ABLE study. So... These individuals now we've been following for somewhere between three and seven or eight years, and people had PET imaging at the beginning of the study to get a very precise idea of what their amyloid burdens were at baseline, and we could use that as a predictor of how people did over time. But we so, also so have to data. explain, a PET scan is a, mm-hmm. a nuclear scan looking at the metabolism of the brain. Actually, PET scans are really versatile, so they can look at the metabolism, but you can also use a tracer which binds to the amyloid protein in the brain. And you obviously took a lot of measures of these people's lifestyles and so on and looking at their exercise levels and Mm -hmm. followed them through. Were they all experiencing cognitive decline or only some? At the study entry, everyone is cognitively normal. People that have high uh, amyloid burdens, we know from other studies, are at particular risk of declining. And indeed, when we look at people's cognitive performance over time, it's the people with high amyloid burdens that tend to do worse over time. And just what was the relationship between exercise and how well they did? It was pretty profound, actually. So people that were more active, and I'll talk in a second about how active that was, were able to see quite a bit of protection so that they were looking, starting to look fairly similar to people that had normal amyloid burdens that didn't have elevated amyloid burdens. That was true both with respect to cognitive testing, but also with respect to brain volumes. You know, that's a very tangible measurement. Just just to be clear here, their cognitive status, their ability to think and their memory and so on Mm -hmm. was protected. Did it reverse? It didn't reverse. So people showed very little decline over time in the higher activity portion of the high amyloid group. There was some decline over time, and that's to be expected with aging. Um, But it wasn't the drastic sort of decline that you sometimes see in the beginning of Alzheimer's disease. And did the amyloid burden reverse in any way or just stabilized? The amyloid burden itself... We just looked at the study baseline, and it was not related at all to physical activity. So in our view, 
These are kind of two separate processes. The Alzheimer's disease pathologies, the amyloid and the tau, those are present. And hopefully over time, we'll have disease-modifying therapies for those. The question here was more saying, given those risk factors, amyloid, for instance, are there things that are protective? And how do those slot in with vascular risk factors and other things that we think are important? So we don't think this is an amyloid-related process. We think this is a protective process that's separate from amyloid burden. One of the issues in Alzheimer's disease is that it's often mixed with what's called vascular dementia. In other words, you've got atherosclerosis in the brain as well as the Alzheimer's. In fact, it may be causative, but that's for another interview. And people who exercise, they smoke less, they're probably way less, they eat better. How much yes. of this was actually just good cardiovascular health? That's that's a fantastic question. So we started actually looking at the cardiovascular risk factors, and they were really powerful predictors of decline, as you mentioned, and the data really bore that out. And so cardiovascular risk scores will correct for things like body weight, cholesterol, smoking, diabetes, a number of different risk factors. And when we were going into this physical activity study, when we started studying physical activity, I actually initially expected that those two things would overlap, building on the intuition that you just described, which was vascular risk factors themselves are reflective of lifestyle and having better vascular risk scores should be associated with having better levels of physical activity. And actually, you know, in these statistical models, because we just know so much about these people, we can directly test that hypothesis. And somewhat surprisingly, actually, the two effects, meaning the effects of vascular risk and physical activity, were both present and they were independent. And actually, that's great because it suggests that for our patients who are at risk uh, and for people in the general population that are at risk, that means that there's two routes to go, the study suggests. One is by improving vascular risk and one is by promoting increased levels of physical activity. And these are actually fairly modest levels of physical activity that we're talking about here too. So, so what was the dose of physical activity that got the effect? More is better regardless. We modeled it looking at the mean steps and saying, you know, one standard deviation above and below that. So that came out to 8,300 steps. So we used 8,300 steps as our illustration marker over the course of the paper. And you can see really nice protection with respect to cognitive decline and also with respect to change in brain volumes. So 8,300 steps was a kind of average activity of people who protected themselves. Is that what you're saying? Or that's a threshold for benefit? So I don't think there's a threshold. I think more is better regardless. But we just so we could depict the effect to people so that they could try to understand what a reasonable activity level was with respect to see a benefit. We saw a fairly major benefit at 8,300 steps, but more is always better. And what about Hmm? intensity? We don't know too much about intensity. These were just looking at steps. We do have other questionnaires from people looking at what kind of activity they did and things like that. And we don't think that these were very high intensity activities. But going forward, we're going to look much more carefully at things like people's heart rate and take more information in terms of their self-report in terms of what kind of activity they're doing. So here we were just looking at steps. So we have no reason to believe that these were very high intensity activities. Hopefully that's good for people who are looking to protect themselves because it means you don't have to run a marathon or a triathlon or whatever to see a protection that more is better and that even fairly modest levels have pretty substantial benefits potentially. I'm still not quite sure what's going on here. Are are you just delaying the onset of dementia that the Alzheimer's processes keep on going but the actual dementia only emerges later? Stopping in its tracks, what's happening? That's a good question. What we call Alzheimer's disease, especially late onset Alzheimer's disease, we know is profoundly multifactorial. There's a lot of different processes which take place that culminate and are having cognitive impairment. So the Alzheimer's disease process is one, so the amyloid and the tau pathology, but there's other important ones as well. And you can imagine that if you had 
multiple pathways that were all converging in the same way that if you had one pathway that you could really improve on really substantially or multiple pathways like vascular and physical activity, that even if the other one kept going, you might not see the emergence of cognitive decline. And I think that's my best guess as to what we're seeing here. So we're preserving some brain volume, cognitive activity, people are doing better over time. But I think the presumption is, is that the amyloid pathology is continuing. I will say that for vascular risk itself, we looked at the relationship between amyloid vascular risk and tau pathology, and there was a relationship there. So I think for physical activity, I don't think it's related to amyloid or tau, but I do think that vascular risk factors can promote tau pathology based on our earlier work. So bottom line here is you really don't know why the exercise worked. It looks as if it might have been by preserving brain cells, but the bottom line is that it did work, so get on with it. Yeah, no, I, I think that the mechanisms of it, we can sit and work out, and they actually might be different in different people in terms of where the benefit comes from. But in terms of just looking at the levels of activity, people that had higher activity for the same amount of pathology in the brain did better over time. So another nail in the coffin for the amyloid hypothesis for Alzheimer's disease. <laughs> um, that I'm not so sure about. I will say that over here, well, you come the from uh, Harvard and Harvard, <laughs> Harvard's amyloid central. <laughs> it, is, it is. So so that's that. There is something to that. I personally don't live in amyloid central, but it's it's definitely a local phenomenon. Um, the what I would say here is that the clearest effects were seen in people that had high amyloid burden, and that might just be because they showed more decline over time, more changes in brain volume over time. So that was a group that we can see more clearly if we've changed the trajectory. I think that part of it may be that. In terms of the amyloid hypothesis, I do think that Alzheimer's disease, late onset Alzheimer's disease, so many lines of evidence are telling us are multifactorial. And I think amyloid is one of those factors. But because it's a multifactorial disease, when we're thinking about treating it, we should be thinking about treating it in a multifactorial way as well. And so physical activity and vascular risk, I think, are two of those ways. There'll be others as well. Sleep, for instance, is something that we've become very interested in and have started studying because physical activity and circadian rhythm are closely tied. So there may be other mechanisms there. But I do think amyloid is still, in my mind, at least one of the risk factors that promotes decline. Thank you very much for joining us. It's absolutely my pleasure. Jasmir Chatwal is a neurologist at Massachusetts General Hospital, which is part of Harvard Medical School in Boston. You're listening to RN's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. Sudden death is usually due to a cardiac arrest, and it's a terrible shock for family and friends, who often say it came out of the blue, there were no warning signs. A study from Finland, though, where by law an autopsy has to be done on everyone who dies suddenly, tells a very, very different but equally disturbing story. Johanna Juntila was one of the study leaders. He's Professor of Cardiology at Aula University. Welcome to the Health Report. Thank you. Now, I suppose what might be amazing to hear for some Australians is how much medical information you hold on individuals in Finland, and that allows you to do a study like this from which we can benefit here in Australia. Oh, yes. Um, there's a long uh, history of collecting information from the general population in Finland, mainly due to the fact that we have a public health service system that covers everybody. So we don't really have private hospitals or anything like that that keep a separate record. So we have everything in the, under the same record, as, which is national. So it's easy to get this kind of information. So tell me how you exploited that to do this study. Well, um, we started this study already in 1998. We started collecting all the autopsy information from the uh, National Institute of Health and Welfare in collaboration with the forensic pathologist here in northern Finland in Oulu. Like you said, uh, in Finland, it's mandatory to do an autopsy whenever a death is sudden. 
and and there's no uh, background information on what could have killed um, uh, the patient or the subject. There's a medical autopsy on all of them, and then there's uh, they have uh, also uh, information on their background um, of clinical history. Um, and uh, uh, the information from next of kin and police that are in the scene where the death has occurred. So you have pretty comprehensive information on the individual through your medical system. So what did you find when you looked at the autopsy data on, I think it was about 6,000 people who had sudden cardiac death? So we confirmed a lot of the, um, the same kind of findings that have been published before. Coronary artery disease is the number one. A cause of sudden cardiac death, also in Finland, about 75% of, of all are, are due to coronary disease. So, so just to be clear, when you have, that means that you actually have had a heart attack itself as a blockage to the artery and then you have an arrest and die. Is that right? So, uh, Not exactly. Not, not everybody has had a, an MI before, a myocardial infarction before. So they have, what they have in the autopsy is a, a significant occlusion of, a, of a epicardial coronary vessel. So and and they have um, and that's the only cause that they can find why the uh, why the sudden card why the sudden death uh, occurred. So that's that's uh, a, a bit of a exclusion protocol uh, until then. So what did you find when you looked at the heart itself? Apart from that, well, there was yeah, there was um, from the from the patients that uh, or the subjects that died suddenly. What we were surprised about was that uh, in those that didn't have any history of coronary disease during their lifetime, um, about 40% had an myocardial uh, infarction scar and coronary disease, uh, even though they didn't know about it during their lifetime. And, and do you any idea how old the scar was? How pre, how much pre, you know, from the age of the scar? Not really. We don't really um, know about um, how how many years might have passed. But uh, if you think about a couple of weeks or, or days, there, there would be different kind of, of findings in the histology. So there would be more acute um, inflammation and such. So these were chronic scars. So they, so they already for, had been there for a while. And yeah, yes. So the implication here is that people who literally for the family, it was out of the blue because they'd never seen the doctor for chest pain. They weren't on cholesterol drugs. They seemed otherwise healthy, yet they had a scar. At some point in their previous, in their past life, they'd had a heart attack. How can a heart attack be silent? Well, there, uh, people feel pain in different ways. Uh, that's what we kind of see also in the, in the clinical practice. There are those people that try to neglect all their symptoms and try to be healthy as, as they can be. Even though they have risk factors, they don't they don't really want to know about it. So I think that that's one of the reasons. And and then other reasons, uh, other main reason might be due to the, the emerging um, uh, epidemic of, of diabetes that is increasing in the Western society. So when when you get diabetes, um, you also get when. Uh, Diabetic neuro neuropathy uh, in in a while when so you, you don't necessarily diabetes. feel feel the pain the same way as you would otherwise. Yes, um, th that's true. And and the do we have any sense of what the incidence or prevalence of silent myocardial infarction, silent heart attacks are in the general population? Yes, there have been studies uh, that reach back already to the seventies and eighties. And as far as electrocardiographic signs of, of myocardial infarction, it's about 25 to 30% in the general population. So but it's still pretty now high. We have, 
Yeah, it is. It is pretty high, and and the recent publications uh, also where an, an MRI have been done to the heart show that about thirty percent of the general population have had a, a silent MI before. So, what do you do with this information? So, the implication there is that for people who have sudden cardiac death, there is something going on. Forty percent with no other signs have had a heart attack in the past. What do you do with that information? We're having a debate in Australia about whether or not routine ECG should be done in general practice. It said, well, no, because the, the yield rate from doing an electrocardiogram when other, somebody who's otherwise well is pretty low. What do you do with the information? Well, um, it, it, that's actually a really good question um, regarding the ECG also. Um, we had about 400 ECGs from the same population before already from these uh, silent MI uh, subjects and about two-thirds had um, abnormal EKG uh, before they died. So I think that EKG, because it's... it's but, but that was um, missed by the doctor, presumably. Huh? That was missed then. Sorry. Yes, nope. yeah, that's true. So actually there's... Um, so if I think that in, in risk populations, like people who have many um, uh, risk factors for coronary disease, an EKG, an annual EKG might be some reasonable, it's cheap and it's easy to get. But the thing is that you have to kind of interpret it rightly and then and, and pick up the, the right patients for further screening for, for echocardiogram with strain and, and MRI. And if you do find something, then jump in and manage the heart, the heart risk factors better. Yes. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thank you. It was a pleasure. Johanna Juntila is Professor of Cardiology at the University of Aulu in Northern Finland. Let's stay with the heart because there have been a couple of interesting studies over the last week or two in addition to the one we just heard from Finland. One was into the value or not when you have chest pain of doing an exercise stress ECG where you run on the treadmill to see if cardiac symptoms and changes in the electrocardiogram occur, suggesting ischemia, a shortage of blood. Stress ECGs are still commonly done in Australia. The other, an Australian study and the world's largest of its kind, was into what's actually a common and dangerous cause of breathlessness, which is often missed. David Playford is Professor of Cardiology at Notre Dame University in Western Australia and co-led the second study. But while I had him, I got him to comment on the stress ECG findings, which suggested it was a pretty pointless test. When somebody presents with some discomfort in their chest with exercise, we tend to think about the possibility of angina. Angina is a symptom that is produced when there is a narrowed artery to the heart muscle. And we should be clear here that we're not talking about acute onset of chest pain. This is this has happened slowly over a period of months and is relatively stable. It's not a sudden new symptom. Right. That's a very important distinction because a sudden new symptom such as sudden onset of chest pain without any provocation occurring at rest could be a heart attack. And that's where it's called triple zero and get into hospital as fast as possible. Whereas what I'm talking about here is a stable situation, as you described, that comes on slowly over a period of time and is reproducible and occurs with the same level of exercise each time, caused by a fixed narrowing of an artery. So the traditional way of dealing with this has been to do some sort of stress testing. The most traditional is exercise ECG to see how much exercise they're able to do before the symptoms come on. And a positive test is the presence of that reproducible chest discomfort, a change in the ECG or some other abnormality such as low blood pressure or severe breathlessness. 
So when the test is positive, that would be an indication to go on and look at the arteries in more detail. And if the coronary angiogram is performed and the result shows that there is a severely narrowed artery, then that artery would be opened back up again, perhaps by angioplasty with a stent or coronary artery bypass surgery. With all of this, the most important decision is to treat the disease. And the disease is atherosclerosis, the buildup of cholesterol and cholesterol deposits inside of the wall of the artery. Where the challenge has been is in identifying what is the thing that makes the biggest difference to the outcome that saves lives, what's the thing that makes the disease more stable and decreases the risk of a heart attack occurring. The treatment for the artery damage, atherosclerosis, is a statin to lower cholesterol and aspirin to prevent a blood clot forming and causing a heart attack. The debate is about what life-saving benefit there is from adding in a stent or bypass surgery. The evidence is that if your angina is stable, there's little or no life-saving benefit beyond lowering your cholesterol and taking low-dose aspirin. But that hasn't stopped ECG stress testing, which is where this new study comes in. David Playford again. This particular study was looking at the 10-year outcome between those who had a positive stress test and an exercise ECG, not a stress echo or a stress nuclear scan, which I'll come back to, but this was an exercise ECG and those who had a positive test and looking at the long-term 10-year outcome on what happened to these people. And the bottom line on the study was that irrespective of whichever strategy was applied, angioplasty with stenting or whether they had coronary artery bypass surgery, the presence of ischemia, in other words, the abnormality of the exercise ECG, didn't have any impact on the outcome of that individual. So then do you need a stress test at all? There is a role for stress testing still. Well, you'd say that because you're an echocardiologist and you do ultrasounds of the heart and stress testing. Of course, but there is still a role. Sometimes it's not exactly clear as to what brings it on, what circumstances it occurs under. So if you're in doubt as to whether it's angina. And then the question is, do you do an ECG stress test or an echo? And my understanding is the ECG stress test is so inaccurate it's almost not worth doing. You're absolutely right. The, um, I should the, say that the, I'm the, on a commission for you, for everybody that's referred to for a double sign of the heart, but um, <laughs> that, that's one side. The fundamental problem with exercise ECG is that it's neither sensitive nor specific. So it's, the, not, it's um, not terribly accurate at finding heart disease when it's there and a, a negative ECG stress test doesn't mean that you don't have heart disease. Right. The stress test might be normal in the setting of really significant heart disease and the, the stress test may be abnormal when there's nothing wrong with you. So what is a stress so that's what, echo going to tell you that an ECG doesn't? So this is, you're on the machine, you've still got an ECG strapped to your chest, you run to uh, where you get the symptoms and then you lie down and you get this ultrasound of the heart. What does that tell you that it, you don't get from the ECG? What it tells you is the amount and the location of where the abnormality is. The stress echo and stress nuclear, where you inject a tracer and look for abnormalities and where that tracer is taken up by the heart muscle, both of them have similar data behind them. Both show the degree and the location of the abnormality of and the, how does that change the narrowed artery. And so that abnormality, if it's only a small abnormality, in general, that's better to be treated medically as in with the aspirin, statin, and then some other medications to relieve the angina rather than doing an angiogram and doing an angioplasty and reopening the artery. Whereas if there's a large amount of muscle at risk, so for example, if there was a narrowing at the top of one of the major arteries, then there could be 30 to 40% of the heart muscle that's at risk. 
that does change outcome. And it's really important in this situation to be confident that you identify those individuals who would benefit from reopening the, the arteries. Which brings us to the study that David Playford was directly involved in and is the largest of its kind in the world. He and his colleagues have gathered the data on a million echocardiograms and tracked how these people fared afterwards. What they've been measuring is the blood pressure in the arteries going to the lungs. When it's high, it's called pulmonary hypertension and predicts premature death. But the trigger for concern turns out to be lower than heart specialists have thought. So what symptom does the typical person with pulmonary hypertension have? It would be somebody who's breathless. Breathlessness is incredibly common. And the question is why? There's many things that cause breathlessness, such as asthma, lung disease, coronary disease, or heart failure. But one of the important causes of breathlessness is pulmonary hypertension. The trouble is that the simple tests get done, such as lung function studies and a chest X-ray, but then it's left and said, okay, well, I can't see anything obvious on the lung function studies and the chest X-ray, so I can't explain your breathlessness. Maybe you're just unfit. And that's not okay. Breathlessness needs to be further investigated. And what we've clearly identified is that when somebody is breathless due to pulmonary hypertension, there is often quite a long delay between the onset of symptoms and when the diagnosis gets made. In fact, we've shown that that's often longer than four years in somebody who's significantly breathless and just can't get an answer as to why they're breathless. So we wanted to do a better job of trying to identify exactly how common pulmonary hypertension is in the community. We did a, an, initially a, a localised study in Western Australia called the Armadale uh, Echo Study, and that showed that pulmonary hypertension was significantly more prevalent than had been shown previously. And we decided the only way to, we could really be sure that we were right was to do the biggest study we possibly could. So that's when we conceived of doing NEDA. So NEDA stands for the National Echo Database Australia, and that is Australia-wide database of echocardiograms linked with mortality risk. Myself and my co-principal investigator, Jeff Strange, who's in Sydney, have been working on this for the last five years or so. Now we have over 1 million echocardiograms on about 750,000 people. This is a really amazing set of data. It basically shows that pulmonary hypertension is common across all ages. Both males and females are affected equally. It's across people who have left heart disease and don't have left heart disease. It occurs in people with lung disease who don't have lung disease. And it occurs in people with no other evidence of any other systemic disease. These people have an increased risk of long-term mortality. And what we found was that there was a threshold of about 30 millimetres of mercury, which was 10 millimetres of mercury lower than had been previously reported. That is the threshold of increased risk associated with pulmonary hypertension. So two things. One is the implication then is with unexplained breathlessness, you should have an echocardiogram. Second is you're diagnosing pulmonary hypertension at a lower level. Is there an effective treatment? Before we talk about treatment, what you have highlighted there is that diagnosing pulmonary hypertension at a lower level means that there's going to be a lot more people who, in fact, have pulmonary hypertension rather than the old method of diagnosing, which means double the number of individuals that have pulmonary hypertension in Australia compared with what we previously thought. There are effective treatments. We have proven effective therapies for a number of different causes for pulmonary hypertension. We have some treatments for left heart disease. That's one of the dominant causes for pulmonary hypertension. And even for those who have PAH, which is a rarer condition of pulmonary hypertension that's due to disease of the arteries themselves, and the earlier that treatment is started, the more effective it is. 
So, bottom line, if you're a GP and you're not finding an explanation for somebody's breathlessness, don't cast it away. Or if you're a consumer and you're finding it and you've just been told it's nothing, an ultrasound of the heart, an echocardiogram is the thing to do and get measured that way. That's exactly right. Breathlessness is not okay. Having a diagnosis of breathlessness isn't really a diagnosis, it's just an observation. And to find the cause of breathlessness is really important. Pulmonary hypertension is one of them, and it has an increased risk of long-term mortality. And so for that reason, you really need to be sure that disease is or is not present. David Playford, thanks for joining us on The Health Report. Thank you very much. David Playford is Professor of Cardiology at the University of Notre Dame in Fremantle. I'm Norman Swan. This has been The Health Report. See you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.